Welcome to another episode of The Greatest Pod, where we discuss and debate what makes something great. I'm Ron Swallow. I'm Ed Greer. And I am producer Bill. And today, we bring you part two of our greatest comic book movies by decade. When last we left you, we had just finished the 20th century, the 1990s, that time of weird, experimental, non-mainstream comic book movies. And so now we're going to go in the totally opposite direction. Welcome to the 2000s, the first 10 years of the new millennium. Guys, I think we all know this is when comic book movies got crazy. <laughs> well, 2000 in itself, it is like uh, a futuristic year. You know, when you look at all the stuff that actually got dropped in 2000, it really, it was almost like a statement year for comic book movies. People don't give Blade the respect it deserves. But when they don't, they cite the original X-Men as the start of the modern comic book movie. And mm-hmm. that in and of itself dropped in the year 2000. And you know, you know what I didn't know before we get off into X-Men land too hard, because it is a, that's a substantial conversation. Mm-hmm. I did not know that Unbreakable also dropped in 2000. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. To my mind, that was an understated comic book movie before we'd ever actually had a real comic book movie. Mm. I think the biggest problem with Unbreakable is that it was advertised horribly. And if you show up to a Bruce Willis action movie and then get Unbreakable, you're going to hate it. Yeah, literally could not be more different than an action movie. Like, that is one of the slowest paced. I love that movie, but it is one of the slowest paced movies you could possibly see. Yeah, I just think it's kind of sad. It's kind of sad that... um it won't be remembered as one of the great comic book movies, even though it has comic books in its veins. Yeah. It lives in this interesting place where it's not a comic book adaptation by any means. It's almost a love letter to comic books while also being a superhero movie, but not like an actual superhero movie. It's, it's, it's so hard to classify that it kind of works against it. But I think what really got it over, especially for guys like us who were, you know, longtime superhero comic book fans was that it put explicitly in the text, a lot of the things that we had been feeling all our lives, like superheroes are the modern day equivalent of mythological gods and monsters. You know, superhero art is like this quintessential expression of 20th century consciousness, you know, and, some of that is in the, the mouth of the villain in the movie, but it really seemed to take those ideas seriously. And it was also such a weird thing that like the hottest director in Hollywood coming off of one of the great successes of all time in the sixth sense decided to make essentially just this love letter to comics and superheroes, this weird love letter as his second movie, like just all around. What a weird thing. Yeah, and we didn't get extra Unbreakables uh, movies, Unbreakable 2, Unbreakable 3, till much later. Uh, and it was mostly because apparently he was very mad at people's response to that movie. Like, there's, there's, I've read a couple articles where they interviewed him and he was like, uh, Dave, I think people are wrong about this movie. This movie's good. And, and people, uh, the, uh, I, I had more in the bank and I don't even know if I want to give it to him anymore, basically. <laughs> <laughs> I take my ball and go home. I'm gonna throw it in the lady in the lake. Yeah, pretty exactly. much. I was gonna say if he got pissed at the uh, reception to Unbreakable, his, uh-huh. his response to the village had to be terrible. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, but you, you you forgot about the happening. Oh I yeah, think the the, I think the I think the fappening was less vilified than the happening. <laughs> <laughs> 
Oh, oh man. man, it's a wonder the guy has made any more movies. If like Unbreakable twisted his cross so bad, I mean, he hadn't he hadn't seen nothing yet. But that that's right. You ain't seen nothing yet. I'm I'm unabashedly a fan of Unbreakable. I'm someone yeah. who loves tone poem contemplative movies, and like that one, that deliberate pace, that weird ominous overtone of like something strange and otherworldly is happening here. Like it's almost a magical realism movie. Um, it would definitely fit into that tradition. It's just magical realism embracing the tropes of comic books. And I literally can't tell you another movie that's done. I can't, I don't know if I could come up with another piece of media that's done that maybe barring the novel, the incredible adventure or the amazing adventures of Cavalier and clay. Um, Mm. that's about the only thing that comes close to like that tone and that weird mashup but yeah unbreakable really interesting um line of demarcation where i guess it it did symbolize cinema taking superheroes seriously in a whole new way almost as a literary topic and then in that same year speaking of taking superheroes seriously we have another superhero movie that literally opens in a concentration camp Um, Ah! i mean (laughs) But again, you, you want to talk about planting a flag, that original X-Men movie, I still remember the experience of watching that. And if Unbreakable sort of tapped into those nebulous ideas of what comic art and superheroes could be, watching that opening from the concentration camp and then cutting to the weird Senate subcommittee hearings where Jean Grey is making a speech and then Professor X and Magneto have this extremely sort of tense but low-key conversation in some side hallway there was something about that that just viscerally felt so much like oh my god they're doing it oh my god they're doing it they're Mm -hmm. they're doing it for real it was so (laughs) amazing yeah i think it's a perfect counterpoint to unbreakable because i think unbreakable was still a little bit i don't want uh, both of them are slightly embarrassed of the superhero costume well, Both yeah. of them are slightly embarrassed about the superhero, just just unabashed action, you know, um, situation. They kind of wanted to ground it, you know. But yeah, both of them. Uh, but X Men, you're right, dude. It was like at that time, it's kind of mind blowing, dude. Seeing a real Wolverine on screen, even though he yep. was just singing Oklahoma five minutes ago and he was eight feet tall. Uh, fucking, <laughs> you know, it, it was like the closest we had ever gotten by far to what we wanted it was like we were getting we were getting rabbit pellets and then they gave us a mcdonald's burger and we went fucking insane i I couldn't agree more i mean again you look back at that movie and it almost looks quaint in the era of the mcu and the dceu but at that point they got the characters right and like we spent a lot of time in the last episode talking about how the writers of Blade essentially rebuilt everything in that mythology from the ground up. And certainly everybody knows how, you know, even starting in Batman 89 and then progressively as those movies went on, it just went off the rails with the characterization of both the heroes and the villains. And then comes X-Men and say what you will about the costumes, all the characters felt like some version of themselves and it didn't feel like they were 
you know, changing anything arbitrarily. It was like, oh my God, this is Wolverine. He's got a Wolverine face. He's got, he says Wolverine things. He acts and moves like Wolverine. Even yeah. down to Rogue, she had like the super over the top Southern accent and like ended up with the white stripe in her hair. And then, of course, like Cyclops and Jean Grey, Cyclops was criminally underused in those movies, but the personality was exactly what you wanted out of Cyclops. Like it was just crazy that at a time when superheroes had only ever been kind of also rans or like weird experiments in cinema, suddenly it's like, no. We're going to take everything, you know, from the page, from the cartoon that we know all you guys watched just, you know, a couple of years ago, and we're just going to fucking give it to you. Like, that was yeah. a big moment. This is like a comic book movie from comics. The Batman movie is a great movie. 80, Batman 89 is a, is a fun movie, but it doesn't feel like Batman comics, honestly, for the most part. Right. It, it, except for that they made comics that were like Batman 89 after Batman 89 came out. But other than that, <laughs> it didn't feel like comics. The relationships between the characters and the way those characters acted. I mean, the Joker famously, his whole origin, his whole personality was kind of reinvented. Commissioner Gordon was a non-character. Vicky Vale hadn't been in comics for decades. It was like it didn't resemble the thing that was on the page at the time. Yeah, yeah. And and X Men a one hundred percent did it, it, it. You could feel it. Sure, the costumes looked different, but everything else was like, you guys got the characters right. Oh, and and so. I also want to applaud them for. Um, honestly, it might have been the first great comic book villain with respect to Deacon mm. Frost, yeah. but the first <laughs> the first great comic book movie villain. I guess respect to um, um, Gene Hackman as well. But you know what I'm saying? Like the one that where you're just like, oh, that's actually Magneto. That is a version of Magneto that I can identify from the comics. You know, mm -hmm. there are several mm -hmm. eras where Magneto acted exactly like that guy. Um, and just to have such a towering actor play Magneto and Professor X, I think yeah. also just grounding that world with like, I don't know how to say it more nice than this, but putting old motherfuckers in there made it more real. Like them being old and living in this world as super people. And now we're just finally, these guys are old men. And we're finally yeah. getting to the point where mutants are in the zeitgeist and people know about them. And there's a grand war that's happening. And Magneto is so physically powerful, he can still participate in the physical war that's happening over the fate of mutants. But Professor X, as powerful as he is, is an old man in a wheelchair. He needs a team of people to physically be him out in the world. Mm -hmm. And this is about the gathering of such. It's just so powerful. Yeah, I, that move of casting Ian McKellen and Patrick Stewart has echoes of casting Brando in Superman the movie. But unlike Brando, those guys took it 100% seriously and approached it as if like, no, these are important, meaty roles. You took Shakespearean actors and then they treated the material as Shakespearean drama. And like, mm -hmm. that's so dope. And I guess while we're on the subject, because we are talking about the entire decade of the 2000s, X1 versus X2, I'm definitely yeah. in the camp. X2, man. It's amazing. X2, to me, remains one of the greatest comic book movies ever made. And I, I think is distinctly better than X1. I do, too. Yeah, well, I think I think the start of it. And like I said, it's my favorite part of the movie, so I got to talk about it. But 
the opening of Nightcrawler very easily breaking into the White House and getting within inches of the president just because he could to like tell the people, hey, this is the message. We can fuck y'all up anytime we want to, so you probably need to relax. That was just, I mean, as a statement, that was rarely even made in the comics. Maybe a couple times in the Claremont run where there was going to be assassinations on major senators or something of this nature. But like, just to make the point of, we could kill the president. Quit fucking with us, please. Mm. You know what I mean? That's That was a big way to start a movie, man. And I love the characterization, even, of Nightcrawler in that movie. is isn't quite the the funny, cute guy, that the confident guy that I know for the comics, but why would he in that world? Why would right. he be in that world? Yeah, you're so right. I, I think what was great about setting up that very pregnant piece of drama of like, no, they literally could kill the president. We just saw it happen. We can't just do anything. We can't just sit back and do nothing about this is suddenly you take your two-sided conflict from the first movie, which was sort of the people who support mutants versus the people who hate mutants. I guess it was there in the first movie, but like the human element of the first movie was almost non-existent. They paid lip service to the idea that you had Good mutants, bad mutants, and then the humans who were trying to figure out which side they should be on. Um, X2 sort of forced the humans to pick a side and yeah. turning the duality of the first movie into like a triumvirate of like really having humans versus X-Men versus evil mutants and what sort of weird alliances and what sort of like weird conflicts are going to arise out of that three pointed conflict. Um, Again, it was just a beautiful level up of what they had laid laid down in the first movie. Yeah, and there's and and you got what everybody had been waiting for, which is Wolverine legitimately fucking dudes up. Oh my god, dude! That sequence, I, all respect to the Nightcrawler sequence, which is an all timer. That that mansion invasion sequence where mm. Wolverine fucking double claws that guy into the fridge <laughs> and then oh, goes man. ham on all those dudes. I remember being in the theater. It was one of those pure emotional releases of like, I was so overwhelmed. I was like laughing, but almost crying because it was just like, holy shit, this is it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, you know what I got to say, I don't want to segue too fast off of this movie, but I felt that during blade two. So <laughs> we'll, we'll definitely, we'll definitely talk about that in a second. But, um, I get what you're saying, though. Honestly, both in both of those movies, I felt like we were finally getting the capability of superpowered people to, you know, and again, I think the Matrix was probably still better than these movies overall in the aggregate as far as like Jesus Christ. That's the first time I saw basically, right. let's just call a spade a spade, Eastern action in a with Western budget, you know, yeah. but I felt as though Blade, X-Men 2, X-Men 1 to a certain degree started to be like, okay, now the average American movie will be closer to the average Eastern movie in regards to action fidelity and things of this nature. I yeah. think what makes that Wolverine Berserker rage scene so good though, is not necessarily that it's the best choreographed action, but it was just such a pure expression of what everybody loved about the character. Yeah. And, yeah. And it's almost like, you know, not to the same degree, but it's almost like Marvel holding off on Captain America saying Avengers assemble until Endgame. It's like you went through an entire movie and you never really saw the Berserker rage and you make it like 
I don't know, 20, 30 minutes into this new movie and you're not expecting it. And then suddenly they just fucking let the chains off and you're just like, woo. Yeah. And it feels earned because he's defending the kids. Yes. Yes. And, and so, you know, we've talked about this before, but the best fight scenes have emotional uh, resonance to them, you know, a a purpose for the fight scene. And that, that the purpose of that fight scene was to save the kids. And sure. He went into the rage where, you know, maybe he could accidentally hurt somebody else, but he also was mostly protecting the children and everybody who doesn't get riled up for that sort of thing. And big ups to that movie, too. I love the little domestic stuff that they had in the middle of the mm-hmm. movie. And and you have to remember that this is 2002 that that movie comes out. I mean, this is before the real cultural sea change toward accepting same-sex marriage. And to make the... To make such a blatant allegory of mutantum versus homosexuality, um, and, and just sort of laying bare how awful it is for a family to not accept you for who you are. Like that was powerful shit, man. And again, it was something that had never been approached in a superhero movie at all. Yeah. No, absolutely. A- absolutely. I, I, I certainly agree with that. And so, uh, th- those movies, those first two X-Men movies are, are a big deal in the 2000s. But I just want to mention a couple also rands before we get to some big daddies. Uh, oh, yeah. Ghost, Ghost World and Road to Perdition. I just mm. want to give them their mm. props because I've actually read the Road to Perdition comic and it's so sick and well illustrated in a black and white style and it's so much obviously more hardcore than the movie is. But the mm. fact that you could make a little black and white graphic novel. You know, I think maybe Max Allen Collins wrote it or somebody like that. Um, and just you could do this down and dirty black and white graphic novel and have fucking Tom Hanks attached to it in a major movie. That's a major blow for, for the real creators of the world, not just these frankly wage slaves that stand in Jack's fuck machine. You know what I'm saying? Like, <laughs> like, you know what I mean? These, these people who are like making their own vision. So I just want to give props to Road to Perdition and Ghost World. Because, yeah. dude, the, the comics that Ghost World are based on, you know, the whole eight ball oeuvre and stuff, uh, Daniel Clouds, those those comics are so individualistic and so such an expression of comics as an individualistic medium. Uh, I can draw. I can write. This is the world that I create. I don't give a fuck about an IP. I don't give a fuck about none of that. And oddly enough, that can be some of the greatest IP of all time. Not saying mm-hmm. Ghost World took over the world or Road to Perdition did, but the fact that they're competing with these big movies, I just had to give them their props. Road to Perdition is a phenomenal movie. Road to Perdition is criminally underrated, and it needs to be said, Road to Perdition stars three of America's greatest actors. You have fucking Tom Hanks, Paul Newman, and Stanley Tucci all doing amazing work in that movie. Then you've got Daniel Craig in an early role, absolutely killing it, directed by Sam Mendes coming off of American Beauty, which was like a cultural touchstone mm-hmm. and shot by Conrad fucking Hall, who yep. was one of the greatest cinematographers of all time. Like, that's a comic book movie I just described. That's insane. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Absolutely. And look, uh, Bill's got a great point with all the stuff he talked about, but um, I just want to mention that you missed a couple things from 2001 that are very important, and that's Josie and the Pussycats and and Monkey Bone, okay? Um, I, you can't, God, dude. You can't leave those. How dare you? Be Brendan Fraser and whoever 
was in Josie and the Pussycats. Hey, Brendan oh. Fraser is uh, is on the come up. You better not fuck with the he Fraser is. Hive right now. <laughs> <laughs> they will fuck your shit up. I'd rather talk about Nicki Minaj and that motherfucker. hundred <laughs> percent um, agreed. Okay, and now I feel it's appropriate to talk about yes. Blade Two because uh, I th- I think that for just uh, and I I've got a really quick spiel about it. I think the graduation of comic book fighting happened in blade two i think blade two is nearly as significant as the matrix is i think no not nearly it is as significant as the matrix is when it comes to straight up digital bodies to get slammed around the 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 larger scope of superhero action brought by guillermo del toro in there when when like when when blade runs up a when 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 nomak the evil guy runs up a wall at the other side of a banquet hall yep and jumps out of the frame and comes down on Blade, uh, almost football field away with a people's elbow from the sky. Mm. You knew we were fucking with different stuff. When they started slamming each other into things, it was, I, I said it before, I'll say it again. It was like people who could lift 10 tons fighting people who, who weigh 200 pounds and what you could do to a human body if it weighed 200 pounds and you could lift 10 tons. You could slam each other into ceilings. You could take people and whip them like Captain America would do years later into mm-hmm. columns and shit. All that type of stuff is present in Blade in 2002. It's a major fucking achievement, man. I can't argue with that. I think the other great thing about Blade 2, it fits into that category that we talked about and really got into heavy with Batman 89 in the last episode of like, what a singular artistic vision and what an unbelievable choice to go out and get the the maestro of monster movies who really hadn't made his stamp but was a well-known figure at the time in Guillermo mm-hmm. del Toro and mm-hmm. just let him off the leash to create what I still think is the most terrifying version of vampires I've ever seen on film yep. for this comic book action movie and just mm-hmm. the, the amount of of atmosphere and dread and horror that he was able to milk out of this action franchise that frankly wasn't really there in the original blade was just like talk about you know adding toppings and whipped cream and a cherry on top of a sunday that you already love blade 2 just fucking brought it man yep it did um you know what's interesting is how bad all the threes got but we'll get to that oof yeah do we have to (laughs) (laughs) but blade 2 is i mean uh also i'd like to mention uh the bad guy in blade 2 uh the the reaper character was like you kind of like felt for the character um oh he uh, went on a journey man like you yeah yeah that movie on the surface is a little cheesy in that they've got the blood pack which is all of like it's like if Rob Liefeld designed a vampire team, it's like the young blood of vampires that come in and it's like they have to form this uneasy alliance with Blade because there's a super vampire out there and they're all, you know, going to go down. But like underneath that Image Comics era setup, they've got a really interesting story about, you know, the upper echelons of vampire society messing around with things that they don't understand and it trickles down and becomes a problem for all the other vampires. And, you know, essentially the 1% don't give a shit. And like, that's what's going on in the background of that movie. And again, what an interesting little bit of social commentary in an otherwise like flashy action movie. Yep. Yep. And I mean, I don't want to get too maudlin because obviously this part of the movie is one of the weaker aspects 
but Blade falling in love with basically a vampire princess mm. and having to give her up at the end when she's like gets mortally wounded or whatever and she, and she dies in the sunlight when the sun comes up and she turns the ashes in his arms. Yeah. Come on, man. Come Dude, on. It was essentially the exact same ending as Black Panther, if I can be so bold. Oh, I mean, interesting. Yes, yes. The, yeah. The, yeah a, a, a great love that you'd never had a chance to foster, you know, because he could have like, loved his, his, his brother. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. And they could have formed a, a cool bond and going into the future, you know, um, doing yeah. stuff. But right it was down to dying on your knees in the sunrise at the end of the movie, you know what I mean? Yeah, dude. I mean, it's a powerful image. You probably recycle that shit forever. Yeah. Um, but yes, uh, Blade Two, super fucking fresh, and like I said, just the aesthetics going from Blade One to Blade Two got better. The 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 shoot the the actual look of the film got better. The cinematography got better, and the action staging got better. Even though Blade's action staging was hardcore as fuck, mm. Blade Two just takes it to such another level. I think. The early front runners for me are X2 and Blade 2, uh, just for my personal uh, whatever. But you know what's interesting? Mm. We're right at the era <laughs> where Spider-Man comes out. Yeah. We're right here, 2002. We moved a little bit ahead in 2003 with some of the shit we talked about. But 2002, fucking Spider-Man. Ron, how did you like him? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I universally, everybody knows. I, But the problem was, this is one of those things where I have an attachment to Spider-Man that's, like, obsessive, um, uh, especially at the at the time. Um, I would say my now self just sees, I do think those changes they made were not great for the movie. Like, I do think that. But it is also better than I gave it back in the day. It's it's still a good and important comic book movie, a thing that set up future uh, comic book movies that were even better. I don't think it's as good as X-Men. I don't think it's as good as Blade 1 or Blade 2, uh, but mm. I do think it was still important. I think I would I would second that ranking. You know, I, I, I think I have more fondness for that original Spider-Man than you do, Ron, but I think you're pretty spot on in terms of like where it fits in the hierarchy. Although I do have to say, Ed, you mentioned that Blade 2 really pushed the boundaries for the integration of special effects with superhero action. Mm. You cannot short shrift that original Sam Raimi Spider-Man for doing nope. the same thing. I yeah. mean, at the time... They were hanging cameras 60 stories up on New York streets on, on wires and like throwing them through just to get the background plates that they then comped the CGI character into. And in terms of creating the feel of swinging with Spider-Man through New York, like that was mind blowing. Like they did that right. Dude. And yeah. just really quickly, I think, um, the, the, the only part that I'm going to talk about is that because I am a, I'm not as hard on it as Ron. Um, but I thought a lot of his like just using his superpowers in gym class and shit and doing these very public displays and stuff was really dumb and, and him like just going, Go web and stuff. I thought that was kind of funny but kind of dumb. I just the whole section the kind of fun and game section of the movie just really didn't move me. Mm-hmm. But when his fucking uncle dies uh, and, and notice in the in the in, in the fun and games part of the movie, you don't see him swinging through the city. He mm-hmm. tries and he fucks up. He tries and he fucks up. He can't do it. He literally can't web swing. And when his uncle dies and he has to get across town super fast, he has to swing. 
and he's mm. going to die every second of each swing. He's going to die, but he's, he, his anger overcomes his fear and he goes for it and he achieves, you know, at that point, the apotheosis of his powers. And it just, it moves me to this day. I love that aspect of the story. It was just perfect, perfect screenwriting. I think to this day, that movie still has the best overall hero learning his powers, you know, figuring out how to be a hero section of any superhero movie. You might not like some of that goofy stuff, Ed, and I feel that. But in terms of like the first moment when he looks at his hands and for whatever reason, he has the microscopic claws coming out of his fingers, that might be dumb. But when he freaking puts his fingers on the brick wall and starts to climb and then you're going with them and then it cuts to him jumping over the roof, like all that stuff works. And then like you're saying to bring the pathos into it, that as the powers develop, he's getting into this darker and darker place. Like a lot of superhero movies have tried to evoke that same feeling of like the wish fulfillment of, of getting the powers and none has succeeded like that original Spider-Man. Yeah, I mean, and those those little hairs, I love that part because that was the body horror of it. Like, sure. it isn't just that I don't need my glasses and I have abs all of a sudden. It's like, uh, I, I saw, I saw like a little meme. It was this kid and he saw that part on the fucking, he does a voiceover of seeing that part with a microscopic shit. He goes, how's my boy supposed to speed his schmeet with these shits? What the <laughs> fuck? <laughs> and it was so funny, dude. I'll never forget that. Oh my god. That's <laughs> hilarious. That's hilarious. It's funny how, like, honestly, for and even for as much as I like this actor, the Willem Dafoe parts of that movie are by far the weakest parts of that movie. They really are. I wanted that motherfucker to go out like Platoon in that movie. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> just like and it's weird because the whole movie has this anachronistic tone where it's like Sam Raimi didn't want to take it completely seriously. And he was so committed to like evoking the 1960s Stan Lee, Steve Ditko feeling that it just came across kind of campy and corny. And then like mashing that up with apparently the studio mandated Power Ranger suit on the Green Goblin. Yeah. along with the Sam Raimi horror stuff. Like, it doesn't really fit together in a way that certainly Spider-Man 2 does. Like, Spider-Man 2 yeah. figures that shit out. Well, I mean, Spider- Spider-Man 1 is like Blade 1 in that, damn, so many things came together almost on accident. Because, like, uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, fucking in 2003, League of Extraordinary Gentlemen comes out, and it's directed Oof. by Stephen Norrington. And we kind of yeah. see... I, I obviously I think he had problems on that movie, but I think he might've had problems because he thought he was the shit coming off a of blade. Mm. You know what I mean? And maybe he wasn't the shit like that. And maybe there was a little bit more corporate oversight from new line, making that movie happen. Maybe there was a little bit more interference like for Sam Raimi that made it actually better than it would have been. You know what I mean? So I, people love Sam Raimi so much, but I just got to say that sacrilegious thing, like a, like a, like a, like a fucking pumpkin bomb thrown in a room full of children. <laughs> <laughs> and Ed goes flying away on his goblin glider, <laughs> screeching into the night. Yeah. And look, you guys, you guys know that I hate the opening on his wrist thing. So I don't need to belabor that, but, but, uh, but I think that was, that's the danger of corporate interference. But also Ed is right. Sometimes, Corporate jumps in and is like, hey, uh, we've seen through all of these studies that this thing works in movies that are this type of movie. So let's do this and uh, actually fixes a thing. So, you know, yeah, well, just you, you, the, get, the swinging, you get the bad and the good. 
And and just one last stupid thing. Spider-Man kind of putting his feet on buildings as he swung by. I fucking love that touch. So yep. it's that sort of wall running and then punch off of a window and to swing. I love that shit. It made it so much more tactile. You notice that? It was, mm-hmm. it's, it was more like real that he was doing it. The sound design of him going boom, 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 boom across your across your window at thirty five floors up. Mm. Me piace. That movie, <laughs> that movie changed how we will all envision Spider Man moving forever. Like it set the template for good or for Ab- yeah. absolutely. Okay, um, so are there look, any- we would be remiss oh, if we didn't mention Time Cop Two, the Berlin decision. Damn it, we we're not going to do this. We're, we're not going to do this. Because um, I was going, <laughs> I was going to say, we got, we got, we're going to spend literally one minute on a, one second on American Splendor. It's awesome. Like I said before, mm. a great comic book, an actual a guy's life in comic book form getting made into a movie. Powerful stuff. Love mm. it. Love it. Love it. That's it from my personal point of view. We got. I, I want to talk about Daredevil real quick because I think it was the very first time I was actually punishingly disappointed by a comic book movie. Yeah. Almost all the rest of them that I had seen up to that point, I was so happy to get that Ritz cracker after eating saltines in the desert for years. I was so happy to get this Ritz cracker with that buttery, flaky texture. Love it, love it, love it. And this goddamn Daredevil movie was a fucking dead snail in my mouth and not escargot, just a regular old snail from the garden. Mm-hmm. It was one of the first time I'd ever been really disappointed with my young mind of like, they could have did better than this. Even yeah. as a youngster, I was like, they could have definitely did better than this. It was like a shock to the system. It was a cold shower of a movie, you know, because well, I saw them was- put together all the parts of Daredevil, but none of the meaning. Well, it was one of the problems that they had this is a thing that happens in Hollywood that you see happen too often, which is when someone tries to just copy another movie hmm. um, and sort of uh, like do what other movies were doing. And so giving Daredevil the same powers as uh, Spider-Man the year before, basically, uh, made him look weird. They hmm. had him jumping really high and doing all these crazy swinging things that that daredevil doesn't really do he does he does them sort of like that but it's like in a more grounded way where you can kind of feel like he's a dude doing this but also has these extra you know senses that help him do those things better Mm. but not like spider-man does them they had this dude jumping all over the place the infamous seesaw uh, thing that was terrible, and the so the fight dumb. scene. Just to clarify, the fight scene between him and Elektra that takes place on a children's playground, and then they're like seesaw fighting. Yeah, in broad daylight, it's fucking ridiculous. Yeah, oh yeah, along along those lines, the Hulk, or rather yeah. Hulk, Ang Lee's uh, Hulk, Ang Lee's Hulk. And again, I gotta say, I think that was, I guess, where I was coming into my. I don't know about this shit. You know what I mean? Because again, I think maybe ten years earlier, five years earlier, I would have ate that up too. I would have thought that Hulk movie was awesome. He's throwing fucking tanks. He's he's so big. He's punching the shit out of stuff. Eric Bana was okay, I guess. You know, this yeah. fucking Jennifer Connelly played probably the best Betsy Ross that I'd seen ever because I'd only seen one. So fuck it. You know, it was just <laughs> it was it was just fine. I loved. I I would have I would have thought it was just fine. But the the ridiculousness of Hulk fighting those stupid fucking dogs 
the fucking the repetitiveness of him fighting the those uh tanks and shit, how stupid it was. Their their take about how when he got angry he got bigger to where like the Hulk started out at seven feet and got to be like twenty feet tall. He looked like a little a little kid's balloon animal twisted up. And just I, I fucking hated the ending. Like yeah, Capital H hated the ending because they low key fucked absorbing man and him and made the Hulk a mutant. I just what are you doing? And I'm never the guy who says shit like this. They made him this. They did that. Oh, never that guy really. But it made me that guy because the changes they made were were not improvements. I had seen people make changes in Blade that were market improvements, and these yeah. were not fucking market improvements. Same with Daredevil. These are not improvements. Make a Daredevil jump across the street. I don't want to go back there. I'm just saying, you're so right, Ron. Watching yeah. Daredevil, straight up, broad jump, fucking Fifth Avenue. Yeah. Get the fuck out of here. Jackie Chan could jump across the street just barely. And that's mm. why it's such a great feat. And you can see that he just barely made it. And he's yeah. living on the edge doing that. That Daredevil could jump probably 40 foot broad jump and with a running start, jump about 60, 80 feet. It was just preposterous. And it was because he had preternatural balance, because he had good, uh, he could feel good. It was still stupid. Along those lines are the Hulk getting bigger, the Hulk fighting the absorbing man in the sky in clouds. Yeah, that was what so the ridiculous. Fuck? So yeah. ridiculous. It was preposterous. The one thing I will say about that Ang Lee Hulk movie, which I, I enjoyed when I saw it, but did walk out with that same sort of feeling of like, Huh. What what wasn't quite right? But what was quite right was some of the Hulk movements when you could actually see him doing Hulk shit, which they didn't have a ton of. But yeah. that was one of the first times I want to say it was probably coincident with the first Lord of the Ring Lord of the Rings movie where they used motion capture to animate a character in a live action movie. And Ang Lee himself performed the Hulk. And I think I I'll still stand by whether you like the character design or not. Some of the stuff that happens in the desert where he takes apart part the army, the way he moves both as a CGI creation and as something with fidelity to the Hulk from the comics, I think it works. And so we're just seeing this is a time like X-Men and Spider-Man kick the doors down and now there's all this experimentation going on with like, oh my God, we've got this technology. Oh my God, we've got this audience. How do we put it all together in a way where the audience likes what we're doing with the tech to tell this story? And, you know, whether it's Daredevil or the Hulk, it doesn't always work. But such is the such is the case in like an early boom phase of anything. I'll, I'll agree with the heft of the Hulk in most scenes. Uh, especially the desert sequence. He has heft, and the things he's throwing and smashing have a little bit of heft that um, I'm probably giving short shrift. But yeah, just I just thought he looked like a little bit too much like a big baby. Mm. You know, and then they went <laughs> and then they went so opposite the other way when they when you get to the Incredible Hulk, making him like yeah. the most ripped human ever. It's like eat a banana for Christ. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh. I mean, I do think there, if there's anything that's non-controversial in the world of comic book movies, saying that they didn't get the Hulk right until the MCU, I feel like everybody can get on board with that. This um, is going to have to be a three-parter, guys. It probably will. And, yep. and because we, we have yet to get to the Nolan Dark Knight movies or Superman Returns. Um, mm. Not that Superman <laughs> Returns needs a long conversation. Yeah. Hellboy comes out, and that is Guillermo del Toro's follow-up to Blade 2. 
even at the time, wasn't a huge fan of that first Hellboy movie. I know some people love it. I'm curious, what was your guys' reaction to seeing that movie? I, I Look, I loved that movie. I already know I loved that movie. Like, I rewatched it multiple times. It was on the rewatch list. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Honestly, right next to it, my DVDs were Bulletproof Monk, <laughs> Hellboy, The Crow, Blade, and then probably uh, X-Men 2 were ones that I just watched over and over again. Uh, at that time period, of course. Like, you know, mm-hmm. shortly thereafter. Yeah. So. Yeah, uh, I don't want to be a wet blanket, but I, I honestly, the thing that's always bothered me about Hellboy is he never really gets hurt and he's never going to die and he's never in any danger. So it doesn't matter, you know, that's and, and, and it's definitely the case in his movie. I mean, motherfucking demon dogs from the in, Dimension X was coming after him. Wicked Rasputin sorcerers, fucking frog monsters, giant monsters yeah. that could eat him. And you never thought for one millisecond that he was going to die. Not because his name is Hellboy, but because nothing had hurt him in the entirety. He got dropped from like outer space in, onto the edge of a dumpster and yeah, on and his the- spine. And he was like, ugh, ugh rough. Well, yeah, that was uh, that, uh, that that's going to hurt. Uh, I will say that um, because the whole point of it is supposed to be like he the, the one thing that I don't think they did great, that if they'd done great in that movie would make it a bazillion times better, because I think the whole movie is supposed to be this. This character is supposed to be evil. He's supposed to be the guy who brings the apocalypse. He's supposed to make that choice. And then he doesn't make the choice. But the whole time you already know he's not going to make that choice. Like, mm. that's not that character's yeah. attitude. His attitude is he's a hero. That's what he wants to do. You mm. know what I mean? So if they had made him a little darker, you know, maybe like, I don't know, he roughed up a couple FBI agents that he just kind of didn't like who were getting in his way. You know, like if he did some dark stuff throughout the movie, they would have made that movie make more sense with the when it, once he once he resists and actually fights back at the end. And sure, he's invincible, but th- that's the whole point. There is that he's resisting being evil, and he and he, he goes through with that. But but they didn't like paint that picture well enough. So I, I can see people's dislike of that. See, that's an interesting point because I'm going to do something sacrilegious and criticize Ron Perlman in the role. Mm. I actually disliked how aloof and nonchalant he was, which I think might contribute to what you're talking about, Ron. Yeah, where it's like. Through the whole movie, he just kind of plays it as like, oh, this shit again. And people say that's what Hellboy is like in the comics. But in the comics, he is just a dude. But it's more along the lines of, Jesus Christ, look at that shit. Like, like, (laughs) you know what I mean? Like, he's a demon from hell, but demon from hell, like other demons from hell still he'll react to it like a person. Yeah, yeah. In those Hellboy movies, Ron Perlman is like sleepwalking through the whole thing. It's like, <laughs> oh, geez, here we go. We got to do this. All right. Yeah. Whatever. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. It, it just doesn't add anything. Like whether yeah. you like the choice or not, it isn't additive. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. If it, it, it isn't the stuff he's running into isn't so outlandish that it's actually funny that he goes oh, this again. That You know what I'm saying? If there was a yeah. certain level of it, it could be funny that way. Like if he, if he saw the the armada from the avengers and said oh this again that could be funny because like this guy what right like 
there's like human beings melting like candle wax and floating eyeballs in the sky. It's like, oh, this again. You know what I mean? Like it needs to be that right. level of weird to make right. it work. But the stuff that he was running into was like, you better be afraid. This thing. But he wasn't afraid because, again, anyway, he's not going to die. So yeah. that um, that's my whole spiel on it. I don't really particularly like Hellboy. And the second movie had even less meaning than the first. Yeah, and but it just it had great fight it. scenes. I, I, did it, though? I mean, if they don't yes. mean anything, if they don't mean floating. anything, how are they great? That's true. They did do a little bit of two floating things on that a couple of times, which I wasn't a fan but some of the you mean like bad wire things? work or whatever? Yeah, yeah, bad wire work. That um, movie is, that that Hellboy two is also um, a great example of one of my least favorite peccadillos with Guillermo del Toro, where he clearly loves a supporting character way more than he loves the main <laughs> character of the movie. Yeah, and like that elf dude. It should have been his movie, but it's called Hellboy two. And like Guillermo del Toro does that in almost all of his movies, where he you can tell that he's got a favorite character and you're just like, could you, could you put that much effort with performance, visual choreography, whatever into other parts? Like it's so obvious. So I don't know. That's just another knock against Hellboy too. All right. Fair. Um, And then we also had uh, uh, in 2004, this was crazy. Blade Trinity, Catwoman, Hellboy, the Incredibles, Punisher, uh, Spider-Man two, uh, and I guess Sky High as well, if you want to count that, which I guess we can. But like a, a ton of superhero movies in 2004, uh, not all of them good, probably most of them bad. Uh, but we got Spider-Man 2, which which we have to talk about. Yeah, and just right before we do that, I got to say Sky High was just 15 years too early or maybe yeah. 10, you know. So, but yeah, Spider-Man 2. Let's fucking do it because I know what's the best movie of uh, 2004, and it's not Spider-Man 2. Oh, oh, shit. It's probably The Incredibles. Does The Incredibles count in this conversation, though? Because it's not it's a not, comic book. It's not based on a comic. Like, you could you could argue it's inspired by a comic, but it also didn't go on to to spawn any comics. I mean, it kind of fits in that unbreakable, unbreakable place where it's almost like a love letter. Uh, yes, and that love letter is sealed in fucking beautiful Pixar wax and yeah. was ferried across the country by a, by a steed. You know what I mean? Like, this shit delivered you more comic book action than we would see for fucking, I'd say, 10 years. And it's the Fantastic Four that you want to see anyways. That And that 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 thing being the best Fantastic Four movie, my my Batman thought, and I'm not saying it's my thought, I'm saying I thought it years before I heard anybody say it, mm-hmm. but I'm quite sure it was out there of, well, Batman should use his money, blah, blah, blah. Years before I heard anybody say it, I was saying that shit. And these sort of memeable daddy's first trip to college, you know, daddy's first deep thinking, you know, uh, thought. Incredibles being the best Fantastic Four movie. God damn, I heard that from every fucking idiot in the world. And it was true. It didn't make it not. It, it didn't make it a less of good point just because every fucking idiot was saying it. Yeah, yeah fair enough. I, I was wondering if you were including me in that uh, pile of fucking idiots. No, but, I, I was. I was saying it. I said it for years, like it was a novel thought. Like, oh, look yeah. at me! And then I got on Twitter and I found a whole tribe of fucking ideologue assholes saying the same thing. But the yeah. bottom line is, it doesn't make it less true. It was by far the best illusion, dude. It was. It was better than the comics. Full stop. Yeah. Because yeah, the yeah. person who was in control of everything wasn't a fucking, uh, you know, low-key neurodivergent genius 
doing right. all this bullshit. It was a regular guy with regular thoughts and wants who didn't understand how the world had passed him by and how he got so fat and how he got so boring and, and couldn't comprehend the injustice of it. That is more emblematic of the average person's life than any goddamn Mr. Fantastic. And the family not needing a freak to show you the, the, the nuance of having powers in a world where other people don't. It's just a beautiful, beautiful, if Ayn Randian uh, take mm. on superpowers and the responsibility therein and your responsibility to yourself to be as great as you can be. You know what I'm saying? You can't, if conforming to society means being less great than you can be, then fuck that. You know what I mean? Like, obviously, I fucking identify strongly with that aspect of it. I just I do love, love that. that. I, I love that so unabashedly. Yeah, that movie. Look, if we're going to include it, then it's hard for me to argue that that uh, is not better than Spider-Man 2 because I think yeah. it is. It's also just weird. Like they mashed up the Fantastic Four with Watchmen with James Bond. Yes. with Like 1970s sitcom tropes. And somehow yeah. it's just like this beautiful Swiss watch of a movie. What a weird mashup that just works. It just works. Yeah, it's pretty much perfect. And it's a blueprint, I think, for for just last things last. It's a blueprint for live action comic book movies going forward. Yeah, I think that's its major contribution because you got to see these characters, you know, in their action milieu, and then see them as regular people, and then see them building themselves back up to the super people they used to be, and their kids becoming who they were, who they weren't going to be. They were going to be stifled their whole lives, but the events of the story make them have to embrace their gifts and make them have to embrace their responsibilities. And then their family gets closer by doing the superheroic adventures and shit. It's just, it's fantastic. And I know the people who made Marvel movies come in, in the future study this movie more than most anything else. I yeah, think that's 100%. right on. Yeah, they, they definitely pioneered the tone that Marvel took and ran with for sure. So there so. you go. That's the Incredibles conversation. So what do you want to say about stupid Spider-Man 2? No, I'm just joking. Spider-Man 2, <laughs> Spider-Man 2's thing to me, that was big and big, a big hairy deal. I think besides Nomac, uh, I think this is the second best comic book villain we've ever seen on screen yeah. besides Nomac from Blade 2. But for real, like besides Nomac from Blade 2 and arguably, you know, some other performances, but uh, it'd be in the top four of all times. Yeah. The villain performance in that is just outstanding. I mean, the the feeling that you get when those the, it's almost like the Jurassic Park stomps, mm. you know, where your, your glass of water starts shaking and shit. When Homeboy would just start clomping towards you, but <laughs> with, with 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 that super speed and he's hitting you from all these directions and shit. It was and the fight where they're falling and his limbs are flailing around oh. and Spider Man's trying to keep the cathedral from falling on the people in midair while he's fighting Doc Ock in midair. He's like. Spider-Man, it just elucidates Spider-Man has so many more um, responsibilities during a fight than the villain does because he gives a fuck about people. I will say, uh, maybe I'm a basic bitch, but like up until I saw The Dark Knight, I thought Spider-Man 2 was the untouchable greatest superhero movie ever made. Like, yep. And to this day, it's got to be on my list of top five. Uh, you know, I think it's, again, The Incredibles, I feel somewhat weird about including on this list, but if we're going to include it, it may it very well may be better than Spider-Man 2. Spider-Man 2 is just perfect. That Michael Chabin story, like the way they synthesize the Spider-Man no more, him losing his powers, quitting mm. being Spider-Man with Dr. Octopus, 
the performance of Dr. Octopus, that train sequence, which is still one of the great all-time superhero sequences, like marrying amazing special effects with an immediate sense of danger, with that heavy sense of responsibility, with actually putting the hero through something that you feel like might kill him or hurt him. Like, again, it just does it better than almost any other superhero movie, including superhero movies in the modern age. Like, if you're a youngin' and you have not given Spider-Man 2 a watch, you owe it to yourself to do it. It's a great movie. Yeah. And I think it's also one of those movies, again, I'm going to, I guess we're going to bring this up all the time, but I do think it's another template movie where people really saw what you could do with not only a villain, but also how much danger you should put a hero in and, Mm -hmm. uh, and how important it is for them to be, uh, to choose to be heroic and all of that stuff. But Mm -hmm. this is also the one where he loses his powers because he's sad, right? Or is that three? No, that's this one. Yeah. I don't like that. I don't like that at all. I think it fits. I think it fits with the Spider-Man that we know from the comics, man. Like Spider-Man's a sad sack hero, and when I say from the comics, I mean like from the '70s comics. Um, I, I never, I never disliked that, and even the cheesiness, which I feel like doesn't work as well in the first movie. That sequence where raindrops keep falling on my head is playing after he decides he's going to quit being Spider-Man. I think it works really well in this movie because this movie embraces melodrama in both directions. Like Mm. it also makes his life just over the top horrible. So by the time raindrops keep falling on your head is playing, you're just like, Oh, thank God this guy gets a chance to breathe. I don't know. As a viewer, like I went through it with him in that movie up to and including that moment at the end where they do the double fake where you think he's just dreaming of Mary Jane running away from her wedding. And that slow cam return reveals, nope, it's real. And then dashboard confessional starts playing during the credits. Oh man. Like I was, I I, kind of have goosebumps right now. Just thinking about it again, maybe I'm a basic bitch, but I just, I love it. I love the, the emotion, the raw emo emotion of that movie. (laughs) Yeah. I I think your emo quotient will, will have you, see spider-man 2 as as greater or worse and also i mean just the screenwriting pedigree for that movie was greater than any comic book movie to that date you know what i mean like the the uh i fucking forgot the guy's name who wrote it but he'd written like you know goddamn the thin man and shit like that you know what i mean <laughs> he'd written like some really serious movies you can probably somebody look it up but he, he had written so many serious ass like serious real grown-up movies and i think his his age and his experience being applied to this is where you can get over that i'm so sad i lose my powers like it takes a guy who's gone through low testosterone <laughs> to uh, to understand how how it feels to lose it to yeah, be a it, person who used to be so virile and lose it 100% and i think that the 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 screenwriting team on this movie is actually really really interesting because the original pitch for the story was by michael chabon um, who is one of the great living novelists in the world. It was then punched up by Alfred Goff and Miles Miller, who created Smallville, which was yeah. really at its height at this time, mm-hmm. right? And was like the template for how to do teen superhero stuff. And then it was finally actually written. The screenplay was written by Alvin Sargent, who's the yes. guy that you're talking about, Ed. Yes. So 
what a weird mashup of different talents, like all bring in something to this movie. And I think that's why the movie does feel so multifaceted in a way mm-hmm. that doesn't feel like too many cooks in the kitchen. It just feels like they're all bringing a different angle on the same core story. And real quick, it started a trend that I feel um, when, when, when homeboy, when Spider-Man stops the train mm. and the people see him with his mask off or with his mask ripped or whatever, and they hand his body over and they take such good care of Spider-Man. In the later Spider-Man movie, they try to do shit like that with C. Thomas Howell setting up the fucking fucking cranes for Homeboy to swing and save. <laughs> oh, Jesus Christ. Right. So we're, if we're talking about template movies, yes. Fucking Spider-Man uh, 2 was the first one that I saw. New York's true love for Spider-Man. And I think that's always an ingredient all the way hence is like New York loves him. Maybe the mayor doesn't. Maybe the power brokers of the world don't. But but the people love him. He's the people's champ. Mm. That gives me goosebumps. Can't argue. Um, so after Spider-Man 2, we get to what are we at? We're at 2005 now. And, uh, you know, Batman begins. I want to just go through a list real quick and then we can hit the. The things, but this one, this year is pretty insane. Batman Begins, Constantine, Electra, Fantastic Four, Sin City, and V for Vendetta. That, that's yeah. pretty bananas. That is yeah. a bananas list of of stuff that was good and terrible. Um, but it's it kind of shows how many how how much they started. I think this has got to be the year when they started realizing. We can do it because the list gets bigger and bigger literally every single year after that. I guess, uh, well, let's just, the, the also rands that aren't going to win. Yeah. Fantastic Four to me, it just has this almost claustrophobic cheapness to it. And I just, it's, it's so interesting that it has everything you would want in a Fantastic Four movie and it still doesn't work. And I think it was the right. one movie that, and it made money, don't get me wrong, but it's the one movie that kind of, made people think that the Fantastic Four is passe. You know what I mean? That that they couldn't be done in the modern era. Because it feels like this is them in the modern era and it still doesn't work. Here's a weird take. I think that movie kind of fails in the same way that Man of Steel fails. Where like on paper it has everything that you think it would need to be a good adaptation, but they don't stick the tone or the performances. Yeah. And it's, it's just such a, a good, um, illustration of how, like, you really need all the elements to come together. And in that movie, they just didn't. Like, a lot of the performances fell really flat. And the tone was just, like you said, and it had this artificiality to it that just didn't feel like something people wanted to watch. Yeah. And we mentioned this in the first, uh, episode. And I assume we'll probably be mentioning it numerous times, but I just want to say again, Fantastic Four did not have a lived-in feel to it. It did Mm. not feel like it was a grounded thing and that the world that they were living in was was something real and and, uh, believable in any way, shape, or form. Whereas a lot of the other ones we watched, even Spider-Man, like, dude, Spider-Man 2 feels like a fucking New York movie. And Spider-Man 1 as well. That You feel like New York in that. Like, I mean, that those types of things are very important. And this did not get that right at all. So, yep. Yep. That's about it. So, um, I, I like the fact that History of Violence was a small 
not well known comic that got made into a big thing during this period. I love that. Yep. Again, um, a great movie like that. Fantastic. That's up there with uh, Road to Perdition. Great movie. Mm-hmm. Like a real, a real. But again, knowing that comic books are source material, not uh, not a genre. Yep. Yep. All right. Yep. Oh, and Crow, Wicked Prayer. No, I'm not gonna. I'm gonna. I'm gonna. I'm literally gonna <laughs> delete that from the fucking recording because no more of these ridiculous ones at all. Yeah, we, we gotta say really funny things, Ed, and that's the but, funny stuff. Oh, that's that's not funny though. I want to throw that movie so, into a threshing machine while it's still alive, it like is far, like the end of Fargo. It is terrible. But let's 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 hit C- Sin City and V for Vendetta real quick. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, because uh, those movies were very interesting. And I feel like good movies that gave us much worse movies. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, if that makes any sense. Yeah. Like people learned the wrong lessons from those movies or in the case of Sin City, uh, just made a second one that was substantially less good. Yeah. Um, well, but, but that, really quickly, I just want to hit on the, the tone of artificiality. Yep. My huge beef with Sin City, like Vivid Vendetta felt like more of a real world than yep. Sin City, which is like obviously true on on some level, but I don't know that it needed to be. But anyway, Sin City was so uh, had such fidelity with the comic book that I think I just think for me it was a it was a seminal mark where it was the first time I told myself being super true to the comic might fuck the movie up. Mm. You know, it was the first time I ever thought that thought. You know yeah. what I mean? Because it's so fidelitous to to the fucking um to the to the to the source material that when Marv busts through the door and starts fighting those cops, the door in the comics comes apart in like two pieces. The door in the movie comes apart or comes apart in all these like styrofoam pieces. It's like when you when you break one of those those cheap coolers. That's what the door was made out of, obviously. Yeah, yeah, and it was yeah. like shitty. I was like, it it negates I the power that. of kicking a door off. It negates the entire power when you know it's made of fucking styrofoam. It negates the power of the of what he's doing and what he's up against when we concentrate so much on the artifice of what's going on. It just it blew my mind that them being exactly like the comic book is what made it kind of suck. It, yeah. That blew my mind. Yeah, the seams really show in that movie in a way that I think at the time it, they they felt like they could get away with because it was so visually weird. It was so unlike anything that anybody had ever done. But I think you look at it now with modern eyes and there's a lot of like hacky or duct tape together elements of that movie, um, maybe both literally and metaphorically. Yeah. And and they weren't and it wasn't like it doesn't feel like it was on purpose. It, it, you know what I mean? And it didn't the, right. the purpose like if it was on purpose, it didn't you didn't come across like it was on purpose. I, th- I, I think I agree with that. It looked really cool. I remember thinking how cool it looked because it did look like the comic book. But you're right in that a lot of that cheesiness uh, uh, takes away from the gravitas of everything the characters are going through uh, during that time. So, yeah. Um, but now we got to hit on what maybe end up being one of the, the top three, um, uh, whether we like to admit it or not. And that's Batman Begins. Admitted or not? What the fuck? Admitted (laughs) or not? Look, (laughs) Jesus Christ, man. Batman Begins saved the fucking world. And I'm not going to brook any resistance on that point. It just, it saved the whole enterprise. 
because yeah. there'd been that we it could have been this weird fad that works a lot better in in high quality animation. They yeah, could have learned the lesson that the way that you do these stories is just give people like Brad Bird large budgets to do theatrical animation. He made a classic in Iron Giant. He made a super classic and profitable movie in The Incredibles. Onward and up for, for people like that. Make these giant comic book e and original products, right? So you don't have to pay any royalties to anybody or be beholden to Marvel or anybody, right? They could have taken that lesson. But I think what pulled them all the way back from that was the fact that they gave a real filmmaker, because trust me, I was the biggest Nolan head until the age of reason. I fucking loved goddamn Memento. I loved, um, I love Memento so much. I might have, I thought at one point it was the greatest movie I'd ever seen in my entire life. And, uh, and I had a whole period where each Nolan movie I thought, I thought it was the best movie I'd ever seen in my life. So trust me. And when he took over just, just making Batman make sense, I, w- I was at the right age where I wanted everything explained. So finally, wor- making a reasonable origin about how he can fight so good and him him deciding to go on a worldwide crime spree to learn criminals oh fuck off that's amazing stuff him getting arrested and shit he the the movie opens up and he's in prison god damn batman begins with the fucking shit and the last thing in this opening salvo the cape flying thing god damn that was the shit the cape flying thing and the tough batmobile that can, that's still agile. It can jump all over everything. It wasn't a tank. It was tough like a tank, but could jump on the rooftops like Batman himself. Yeah. Fuck! That's the shit! That movie's yeah. the shit! Well, and, you know, one of the fight scenes, the, one of the fight scenes, uh, is, um, when he comes back is him just making dudes disappear for a little bit. Mm-hmm. That, that shit is dope. It <laughs> like, is fucking dope. It unfortunately ends with the weird yeah. Nolan choice of like whipping the camera around a bunch of times and calling it a fight scene. Yeah. But like the monster movie tone of guys just being yanked into the darkness and disappearing. Oh, that's dope. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It was one of the cooler, cool parts of the movie. Um, and and look, it it looks amazing. Like, say what you want. Sure, it's I think it's what Chicago or yes. well, something like about, that. The thing about Batman Begins, though, the Dark Knight was shot like 90% on location in Chicago. Yeah. Batman Begins, they shot some exteriors in Chicago, but they were also on sound stages. Like the Narrows and Arkham Asylum was oh, all built yeah. on a stage. Mm-hmm. You know, they... A lot of a lot of the more embellished elements of Gotham were actually sets in that movie. Yeah, yeah and it shows, and it's tight as fuck. Because one of my only beefs with with Dark Knight is that it's like visually less interesting than than Batman Begins for me. Well, we'll, we'll get there because I, yes. I have a totally different opinion. But let me just say this about Batman Begins: we also need to appreciate that this was sort of the first one of these movies that happened in the age of internet 2.0 like once the Mm. internet started looking like what we know it to be today it's post facebook it comes out two years after facebook launches and it's like when message boards are all grown up you know what i mean so this was the first movie where they actually had a chance to cast an actor who was the internet's fan cast for the movie and yeah. people forget that that Christian Bale was like the very first grassroots 
fan consensus for any of these superhero movies was take the guy from American Psycho and make him Batman. And they fucking did it. Yeah. Yeah. And he was the best guy for the job. 100%. He was the best guy for now. That stupid ass voice notwithstanding. He was definitely the best for the job. He looked the part. He was physically the part. He was like he was like when the people started jacking off over fucking uh, Pierce Brosnan in the early eighties, wanting him to be Bond for like ten years. These people got their wish. Fucking super dope. Yeah, I I gotta say, um, people complained about the voice a lot, and and look, maybe it shouldn't have been so over the top. But I gotta say, I, I and I defended it this way when I was talking about it at the time too. I gotta say, I think about like if you're Bruce Wayne. And the Bruce Wayne they're representing is this playboy who's probably been on TV, who's done tons of speeches, who people have heard of talk a bazillion times, right? Mm. If you've heard this person's voice and then they talked in their own voice, you'd be like, that's Bruce Wayne. It'd be like if Paris Hilton came down in a Catwoman suit and was like, it's hot. It's so hot. You'd be like, (laughs) okay, that's fucking Paris Hilton. I know that's Paris Hilton. Paris Hilton is Catwoman. You would do the same thing with Bruce Wayne. So changing the voice, I think, is actually fine. But it was a little over the top. I think we can all agree with that. Well, I just, I think, I just think Batman sounding like a mouth breather with a cold yeah. is just a step too far. But it's yes, I weird, totally agree with you. It's the weird choice to like not use your nose when you're speaking, where everything sounds like I'm. I can't breathe through my nose. Like that's. That's the weirdness of that choice. Dude, they missed an opportunity, bro. Batman chilling out in a bunch of stalactites, but you realize the stalactites aren't like actual stalactites. They're, they're mucus built up in his lungs. <laughs> and like the mucus guys come out and they're like, hey, Batman. I just want to let me just shit on Batman Begins for two seconds here. <laughs> no, I forbid it. I forbid it. I put the iron shield over Batman. No, go ahead. Go Listen. Ahead. For all the complaints that people have about Christopher Nolan, Batman Begins is the movie of the trilogy that has the most thudding tone-deaf dialogue, that has the most, like, not even trying to hide it in subtext themes. Like, I would argue that for as lean and mean as the structure of that movie is, the actual script is probably the worst of the three movies. All right. What's coming out of their mouths? What, like how people are talking to each other? Like none of it actually sounds like human beings having a conversation in Batman Begins. But look, Bill, I'm just, I'm just here to say that it's not what people say. It's what people do. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) And, And even but it's like the the word fear has to be mentioned 80 times in that script. Even characters like Rachel Dawes, like she doesn't have a human line in that movie. Everything that comes out of her mouth is a speech. I'm just saying, I think those movies actually get more naturalistic once you get past Batman Begins. Okay. Yeah, I, I think that might be true. All right. So now we're going to get moving on to 2006. Again, I'm going to hit quick highlights. Um, we got, yeah, 300 Superman Returns and X-Men The Last Stand are the basic standouts. There's a bunch of other small things and some great animated stuff that came out, but we're trying to get through all this. Like Teen Titans, Trouble in Tokyo came out, and it's freaking amazing. So, But we're, we're not including that in the greatest movies. We're doing live action here. So we got X-Men Last Stand, 
um, 300 and Superman Returns. So I got to say, not a great year. No. Hey, man, I'm the juggernaut, bitch. <laughs> X-Men Last Stand can get Cause fucked. I don't yeah. forget that. It's one of the worst. Uh, yeah. It's one yeah, of the worst. I, I, no I'm, one can do Phoenix. I don't know why, but they can't. Yeah, and that shit was directed by Brett Ratner, who say no more about it. Like, like that's all you need to know. Brett Ratner, total piece of shit, untalented. Forget that movie. We don't even need to talk about it. 300 is interesting. I loved it when it came out. When yeah. that movie came out, I distinctly remember being like, oh my God, it's like somebody took a Renaissance painting and turned it into a fucking movie. It did everything that 22-year-old me wanted a movie to do, and now I would never want to rewatch it again. That's just kind of, I've come full circle on that movie completely. Yeah, I think I'm the same way too, because it also represents... Uh, pretty much everything I hate in regular life. Right. You know, it's like the greatest man could do the greatest thing. And he's the greatest. He leads these people who are pretty great, but they wouldn't be as great without him. The greatest guy. Toxic That's what masculinity and xenophobia. The movie. <laughs> this is Sparta. I remember literally loving it when I first saw it talking about it, doing lines from it, probably trying fight scenes from it. Sure. 300 is, it is one of those cultural artifacts where when, when the people who are mad at rings of power and she Hulk and stuff like that, talk about what well, you see, they're just not even trying to hide the politics, mm -hmm. but these same motherfuckers like 300, which is basically mm -hmm. the Greeks saved us from being mud people, garbage monsters, you know, Persians, according to the movie, according to the yes. movie, Persians yes. are going to come to our good, good, let's call it what it is, white. And they wouldn't have even, even the Greeks of the time wouldn't call themselves white. White is a concept, comes from like 1910. But let's just yes. go with it. Correct. Europeans and Euro values save the world from the mud people's uprising because 300 worthy whiteies stopped them in the, in the Thermopylae gates. And and that's what proliferated knowledge and wisdom throughout the universe, basically. The, politi <laughs> the, the politics of that are bare bones, and those people don't have any problem with those politics. But as soon as a bitch start twerking or a Negro elf starts shooting some arrows, all of a sudden they can see the politics. All of a sudden that's when they can see the matrix of politics in our media. And it's mm -hmm. just preposterous, and those people can go get fucked. Indeed they can. Uh, it is worth saying, though, that movie did pioneer some things visually that were dope as shit like yeah. the speed ramping stuff with the pop mm -hmm. zooms like the weird use of cgi to really create that painterly aesthetic i mean that's that stuff is all really cool which Zack snyder would later drive into the ground hammer the coffin dead and bury mm -hmm. it but like at the time it was awesome dw griffith was a filmmaking motherfucker too you know what i mean <laughs> Yep. <laughs> some of these motherfuckers with terrible messages be throwing it down with with the filmmaking so i mean that's to be expected but yeah the yeah. the ethos fucks up how good the movie is because i'd say the same thing with something like sucker punch uh, just to go off of the zack snyder rant of my own he can do some shit that looks cool he can't make it make sense and he can't make it have an emotional through line for mm -hmm. for people who aren't sociopaths but he can make some shit look cool and actually fuck yeah he can agree yeah. 
I got to say, though, the most important things that you guys are missing that 300 gave us is the look that System of a Down decided to use um, <laughs> without... <laughs> Without <laughs> listen, system of a down. I can I can get with them all day. Hell yeah! Um, we also got Superman Returns. Do we 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 mentioned a little bit about what Superman Returns was, which is like we all kind of feel like great concept, uh, badly done. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I I could spend an entire episode giving my breakdown of all the ways in which Superman returns fails me personally. And they insulted me as a, um, <laughs> but, oh, <shit>. but <laughs> the plane sequence, all time, great superhero movie moment. Yep. Um, the rest of it. Fuck you. Okay. Perfect. Yeah. That's, that, that, I, yeah, no argument there. Um, yeah. And that moves us on to 2007. Um, I know we're going through this, but this one also, 2007, also not a great year, guys. No. 2007, not a this great really year. Lends, this lends credence to Ed's point that Batman Begins righted the fucking ship. Because yep. if you look at it from like Spider-Man on, there are way more bombs, way more duds than there are, you know, good ones. Yep. Yeah. A Spider-Man 3. Uh, uh, the 2007 TMNT, but that's a cartoon. Uh, Ghost uh, I would Rider. Say just really quickly, uh, the, before we get to that damn Ghost Rider, which we should not spend too much long a time no. on. Uh, <laughs> even even Mendez looked pretty good, I guess. Um, uh-huh. uh, 30 Days of Night, another one of oh, these. You man, see how yeah. each the, each year, oh yeah, start to see good. we trickle these little. I made my own comic. I published it through Image or Dark Horse or some little place or maybe even self-published it. I knew a guy in Hollywood. He got me some meetings. They decided this was a low risk uh, on on, a, on an IP that was gettable at the time. All of a sudden, I'm in a major movie motion picture. And, you know, I got vampires taking over this Alaskan town. And I I, I maintain that that movie has a little bit – it's still a little bit too nihilistic. And the vampires are too powerful to have anybody last even 30 days in that town. They would have – ripped that town up from under everybody and eaten everybody in a 30 days of night situation. Everybody would have died in that movie. But when they do conquer and win in the end, it feels extra good, you know, that they conquer such an unstoppable force. And I just wanted Josh Hartnett's best performances. It's a nice little mean, lean, mean, as me and Bill like to say, little movie. I, I love it for that. I would argue it's the only good here, a comic book movie in 2007. Uh, well, yeah, Spider Spider Man three, and yeah, yep. Ghost Rider, and that uh, that fucking that terrible Fantastic Rise, War. Rise of the Silver Surfer, which it's it. I, you know what I? You know what is a cardinal sin? Okay, if there's nine rings of hell, mm. there's a tenth ring of hell for when you waste good vocal performances. Oh, I was gonna say that. Yes. Yeah, dude, because he's Fishburne is great as a Silver Surfer. He's got yep. nothing to do. He's, he's got nothing going on, but he's literally like strapped to a table having conversations with people most of the time. But sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. But like his, the, the, that's how Silver Surfer sounds. That was perfect. He actually that w- his voice in that is the closest thing to what I always pictured Dr. Manhattan to sound like in Watchmen. Like, yeah, that that all powerful, detached kind of all knowing but still compassionate guy like Lawrence Fishburne kills it the rest of the movie 
meh. Yep. Yeah. Agreed. Agreed. Um, and so let's go on to 2008. Uh, 2008 is uh, significant, as oh, you guys. 2008 is the year. It is the, probably one of the most important years for uh, comic book movies in general. Um, I'm just gonna I'm gonna name some crappy ones just to get them out of the way. We got Hancock, uh, <laughs> Jumper, um, Wanted, uh, Punisher Warzone. Uh, so I guess you could include the Incredible Hulk, but there's some argument that the Incredible Hulk is okay. So, um, and then we got the most important two, and that's Dark Knight and Iron Man. Mm-hmm. So anything you guys want to hit on, or do we want to just hit Dark Knight and Iron Man? I mean, but that that's an embarrassment of riches. Just even if we were going to exclude those other ones, yeah. I just think it's this year shows that, that that I think this is the first year where we get that the country has a palette towards Mm. these movies like there's enough of them for us to kind of go through them and go i don't like this one i don't like this one i like this one i like this one and and the people the executives even are starting to see shit just because you do a superhero movie like hancock is basically a superman sure they did a superman movie that kind of sucked ass that people didn't like and people didn't even didn't even really connect with the spectacle i mean charlize theron and will smith in a movie circa 2008 and it low key not bombs but it did underperforms that's insane like i think people just really rejected the fact that it wasn't based on any ip and that it didn't have any actual um any real gravitas or pathos not necessarily because it wasn't based on ip but it didn't help it you know the way the story was structured so i think that's an interesting thing yeah i'm gonna build on that like when you when you look at that list of stinkers from 2008 Wanted, I think, is a little bit of a bubble one. Like, that's not a bad movie. But between Hancock, Wanted, Jumper, and even that Punisher Warzone, like, movies that are getting farther away from the superhero aesthetic, right? Getting away from capes and costumes, getting away from an established IP, getting away from, you know, a story that comes in baked with, like, big heady themes and, and shit like that. Those things are, those things are not finding an audience anymore. You know what I mean? It's like the movies that they had started trying to make in the nineties, just these like superhero flavored things mm. that don't really get what's right about superheroes. This might be the year that they die completely, even though they continue to make them, but like nothing is hit since this year. This is the year that turns us completely into Capes, tights, Marvel, DC, let's go. Yeah, yeah. I would uh, 100% agree. And um, I do want to mention, just on Punisher alone, in defense of like Warzone, which was kind of a fun movie, I think Punisher's just hard to do. I think that because he's a revenge character, everybody's seen a revenge movie before Punisher came out, and that's what that story is, a revenge story. And if it's not done with the coolest action you've ever seen in your whole life, that movie's not going to be good. I mean, John Wick is basically a really good revenge story, and it's great because the action in it, in it is fucking insane. And without that, I don't think it's a great movie, um, and, and it's just another revenge story. Um, and obviously, there's some great things to that as well. We can all have that John Wick conversation. Um, but I just, I just want to say, as in defense of The Punisher and all the movies that The Punisher's been made, it's just not like great for a story because he's not saving anyone 
and he's just there to kill some bad guys. No, I mean, the, the not saving anybody is a real big deal because, again, that's why I've always, like, caped, oh, caped, ironically, caped so hard for the Punisher in these fucking conversations because in the comics that are good, that is what he does. He yep. does, he, he identifies a, a, a person who needs to be taken out who is harming a bunch of people. That's the yes. big part of it. It isn't so much I'll assassinate this guy who drives Porsches and has a, has an awesome life getting double blowjobs from models and I'll shoot him in his head because I hate him because he's the coke dealer. No, that guy is a slaver. That guy is a real fuckeroonie. And, you know, he, he, he beats up guys from that level all the way up to CEOs. But in Warzone, I don't even know who his real genre of guy is. You know, I don't know. I don't even know what his M.O. really is. They, they kind of like, I don't know. You're, you're, there's so much more wrong with it. I don't want to do of, of what, what Bill yeah. promised not to do on fucking what's name it so we can just move on. But yes, it's very hard to do on film, especially when you divorce it from anything that would actually make you like a movie in general. Without the yeah. Punisher moniker on it, they would have done so much more to, to, to shore up the story of that movie. Exactly. But because it's a Punisher, they felt like they had carte blanche to be stupid as fuck. And it's it's yep. a really sad thing because Lexi Alexander has more action direction talent in her little finger than a lot of these guys that get bigger movies. But it's just like there's something something culturally or 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 zeitgeistly always wrong with what's happening with what she's trying to do. So uh, God bless her. I hope she gets uh, something better, uh, uh, an easier project with more actual emotions to do later, so we can see what her chops really are. Absolutely. 100% agree. Um, I do want to mention uh, Angelina Jolie was incredibly hot in Wanted. That's about it. That's all I wanted to say. Um, <laughs> yeah. Let's, yeah. The, let's the first thing the I wanted, event. Yeah. yeah first time I it. wanted to fuck a stick in a long time. Um, <laughs> oh, also, and then we didn't talk about the spirit and you know why, motherfuckers. All right. Oh, go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> so the Dark Knight and Iron Man came out. Those are arguably... Um, I'd argue they're the two the two most important movies for su for comic book movies. Uh, period. I would argue that both of them are the most important movies. Now, are they the best? Arguable, but I would argue they're the most important. Um, I mean, in what's the, interesting the, is in the modern era. This, I mean, this two thousand eight. Unless you want to count us talking about X Men Origins Wolverine, which. I think we are a podcast who is above even doing that. So I think that's why this is a great place to end because those two before the 2010, unless you count X-Men Origins Wolverine, which I do not No, mm -hmm. they're the last ones of this decade we're talking about. And they are to this day, two of the best. I think personally, there are days when I wake up and I think about comic book movies, but instead of meditating or exercising or even drinking water, uh, I'll wake up and think about the history and legacy of comic book movies. <laughs> And I'll go, I think Iron Man might be the best of all of these. I think of all of the Marvel movies, Iron Man might be the best, even though it's a, and I know that's like saying that Incesticide is better than Nevermind when you're talking about, you know, fucking uh, uh, Nirvana, Nirvana albums. Yeah. I know it's like talking about, I want to hold your hand is better than Sgt. Pepper's or whatever the fuck it's, you know, but I, I think Iron Man, to me, Iron Man's better than Dark Knight. And I know it's like just emblematic of, I think that's the Marvel DC shift. I don't need the intense pathos of Dark Knight. I reject it as silly. Inside of Dark Knight, when we get into this, uh, you know, the, some of the plot mechanics of Dark Knight, we'll, we'll talk about that in its own section. But Iron Man is so beautifully free 
of all the pretending that we're in the real world that the Dark Knight does. It's beautifully free of that. It To me, it feels like something, an uber reality. You know okay. what I'm saying? It's, 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 it's not a yeah. fake camp reality at all, but it's an uber reality. It's, where, a, heightened re- it's a heightened reality. Yes, yeah. yes, it, yes. Still, it still feels grounded, but it does feel like all the things that are happening are are amazing and and still over the topish but like still feels like it's part of the reality i guess i mean i think i think we're, we're going to have a conversation on the patreon about what is fun mm-hmm. right because it's a term that ron throws around a lot of times and sometimes yeah. ron and yeah. other people throw it around to describe things that may not be intellectually challenging and have a lot of plot mechanics but if you take them in the spirit of fun they're better because you're not placing all these expectations on it that they don't garner right you know, and like i've learned watch to watch con air yes exactly exactly <laughs> something like that so i've learned to kind of take it that way but god damn it iron man is fun without being stupid as fuck if you yep, ever yep. want to consult with me on what's my line what's my difference iron man is fun without being stupid on any level and yep, i think and that's I- important and I think we can't like we would be remiss to not mention that Robert Downey Jr. as Tony Stark uh, is insane. It's, it's pretty. Best, it's just uh, it's the best debut comic book character performance of all time. Full stop. I think that's I think that's why. I mean, unless 100%. you want to count Christopher Reeves, maybe Christopher Reeves it, it is the only thing better. fucking with that. Yeah, no, I know that's the thing. It's it's him and Christopher Reeve, and him as Tony Stark might be better. Which is for even, I mean, especially for me, is saying a lot. Yeah. yeah. I mean, well, there was, I mean, you, you, especially if you know about Robert Downey Jr. and what he's been through, you're kind of like, oh, oh, he's, he almost is a, like Tony Stark in real life. If you, if, you know what I mean? Like, there's just this, this, you know, hard drinking, um, creative person who's a smart ass and and just hits all the right ways does kind of whatever he wants he's rebellious but he's also like really cares and if he's aware of what's happening in the world you know he wasn't aware there's a character arc too i mean like the whole thing is so well done like tony stark is almost unlikable at the beginning but mm-hmm. like charming unlikable that that kind of charming unlikable where you're like this guy's a piece of shit but he's also like pretty funny and likable. It, it's the greatest character arc in any superhero movie bar none. And, and yeah. it is magical the way that they are able to balance exactly what you're talking about, Ron, where from the beginning, it's not that he, it's not that he sucks as a person, but he's so flawed right there on the surface in so many ways, in ways that you can even tell he himself doesn't see but his charisma is also off the charts. And so the charisma stays through the whole movie, but he does a complete 180 on everything he thinks about his life, his morality, the arc of what, you know, you, you literally watch him transform into a totally different person, into the person you want him to be from the beginning. And like for a movie that we're describing as sort of fun and doesn't take itself too seriously, like that, to, to use a phrase from my good friend Ed Greer, that is a character arc for your ass. <laughs> <laughs> it really is. Yeah, and and it doesn't it doesn't at no point does it feel uh, internet's favorite word forced. 
You know, mm-hmm. it, it doesn't feel forced. You feel like he actually ran into a bit of trauma for the first time in his life. And I don't want to denigrate his transformation, but it's almost like how celebrities always got that pet issue that they got because they went to fucking Nepal. They, they paid their way to the top of a fucking spiritual mountain that everybody else had to climb for 13 years and do all these chakras. Fuck that. I took my private jet and I landed on top of the fucking Dalai Lama's house. And I and I fucking made him tell me the secrets of the fucking universe. And then they come down off the mountain and telling you, you can't eat meat. You can't cross the street. You can't use plastic. You can't do this. It's like that, 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 that you have to be privileged to even have this sort of epiphany type of yeah. thing. You know, he had to be rich as fuck and, uh, exploring his own weapons line out in Afghanistan to even be captured and be, you know, hostage to this into the level. You know what I mean? You got to be privileged to even have this sort of epiphany. But when he does that's when he becomes a hero because I honestly part of me goes, yes, the average Joe could be a hero. You can save cats from trees. You can save children from burning buildings. But if Elon Musk was a good guy, the world would get instantly 15% better like that. Mm. And this is emblematic of what a hero is. A hero has outsized ability to change the world, to impact the world and chooses to do good. That is a hero or excuse me, that is a super hero. Oh. So the fact that this movie spawns the superhero genre again uh, in this new way, that this it, it's almost the superhero genre taking its almost final form yeah. in this movie. And th- I just think it's it's wonderful. That's why it's 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 my jam. Iron Man one yep. is my is my jam. I watched it with my mom the other day, and she was like oh. fucking glued to it. She was like, ah fuck. He's in the hole. How's he going to get out? Oh, shit. He put on a suit. That shit is ill. Oh, shit. He's got the new suit. Ah, oh, he can't fly it right. She was so there for all of his his um, learning. And last mm. thing I'll say is his 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 fun and games portion of him learning how to use the suit is one of the funnest in any superhero movie. I'd, I'd liken it to Spider-Man 1 or yeah. any of these movies that really showed the intricacies of getting powers. This one did a good job of it. That's fair. It is an interesting contrast, too, to draw between it and the Dark Knight, because I like how you put that, Ed. It's like the superhero movie taking its final form. And the Dark Knight definitely is the previous generation. Like the Dark Knight was kind of the apotheosis of everything that had been done up to that point. And then Iron Man was like, yeah, but what if we did it this way? You know what I mean? Like the Dark Knight was. Mm-hmm. All right, we're going to take superheroes seriously. We're going to make it a big budget action movie. We're going to have great actors playing well-written roles, like all this stuff. But we're still going to make concessions to make it more of a movie than a comic book. And Iron Man was like, well, no, what if you just took the comic book and just did it? Like just mm-hmm. did, just made it, made everything look like it does in the comic book like made all the characters act like they do in the comic books. Like what if you just didn't have to add or change anything? What would that look like? Yep. And it was the first time that shit worked. Yep. Absolutely. And they had that Nick Fury at the end. I mean, you know, they started That's almost the, the knock against it in my book. Cause it's almost like, I think people, people give it too much credit for like starting the MCU when it really just deserves the credit for being a great movie. I agree. And that's what I, I agree. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I gotta say, I gotta say, even though I enjoyed it, um, I do remember I went with my now ex-wife, and maybe this is why she's my ex-wife, mm. but she said that um, the the 
the fight scene at the end went a little long. That was her biggest complaint about the movie. She was like, this just feels like this, these robots fighting each other is taking a little too long. <laughs> that, that is the best criticism of the movie, though, is yeah. the third act just kind of sucks. It just kind of falls flat. Yeah, I mean, the only reason why I don't I don't really put up with that, though, is <laughs> it's a fucking classic Iron Man scenario. Yes. If someone stole my technology. They made something more powerful than me. They happen to be fighting me when I'm on 12% power. I am fucked. How do I think my way out of this? Oh, and when, when the His Girl Friday of Pepper Potts actually does her thing to help him in the end, it's mm-hmm. a smart, brave, cool move. That she does to help him. You know what I mean? It's like it integrates all of these. She finally get that's her way of showing I not she's not just saving her boss or her man or her lover or anything. She's becoming part of the superhero team at that point. She's accepting him for what he is as a superhero at that point by turning on the electromagnetic whatever and fucking up stain so he can get the upper hand. I love that. I, I don't, I, I agree that that's not choreographed as well as whatever, but from the mask being ripped off so they can actually emote, we can actually get Jeff Bridges emoting against Robert Downey Jr. to him needing his, his girl Friday to help him to the technolo- technological smart way he solves the problem and beats the guy not through pure force. It is an Iron Man comic, the best Iron Man comics in like that. So I, I give it a pass on that. Fair. That's fair. So let's, uh, let's talk about the Dark Knight. Um, all right let me let me just let me just address something from the beginning right all right this whole thing of it's just chicago first of all no it's not every single exterior shot has cgi added to it i grew up in chicago i know the city like the back of my hand so first of all you're wrong second of all so what like the choice to give a superhero movie that concrete of a sense of place. The fact that they're shooting interiors on location in the downtown of a major city is fucking awesome because usually all that shit would be done on a soundstage with either over-rendered production design that doesn't look real or understated production design that just makes it look like anywhere USA. This is like... We're living in the middle of a city because we're fucking making the movie in the middle of a city. I think the scope of it is almost David Lean in that way. David Lean made these amazing epic movies back in the 60s because he took cameras into places that nobody else would take cameras. When he made Lawrence of Arabia, they were in the fucking deserts of Jordan showing you those those scenes. I get the same feeling when I watch The Dark Knight. Like, this is not a bunch of CG bullshit and not like a bunch of tiny sets that they built and try and are trying to convince me it's an entire city. Like, I'm living in a fucking city and that city is under threat through the entire movie. I think it works wonders. Yep. And uh, I got to say, the opening to this movie, also good. Uh, Holy shit, that, yes. That That whole masks them killing everybody and it being the joker at the end that's fucking great it's it's fucking great i mean i like that that opening is dope as shit um look there's there's problems with this movie but like it's mostly you know uh you know it's another one of those things go nuts yeah i want to hear i want to hear this because like i 
I see some problems, but in general, like I think this is one of the great movies ever made, not even just comic book movies. And again, I could totally be a basic bitch for that, but like, I want to hear like why it's not. Well, and it's not necessarily that it's not, it's that I wonder sometimes, and I haven't rewatched it for a little bit, so it might be, might be due for a rewatch, but I wonder sometimes when I've watched it, if it wasn't for Heath Ledger just fucking destroying as the Joker, if I would enjoy the movie as much as I did. Hmm. And, and I'm not a hundred percent sure. And also, you know, that whole turn with the criminals not blowing up the other boat. And look, I'm not saying that all jail dudes who've been to hardcore jail are guys that would just blow up a ship. There's plenty of good people who are stuck in jails. Like we, we all know that. But also, there's a couple real bad motherfuckers who would be like, yeah, no, we're blowing up that fucking ship. So, you know, the, the whole concept and, and look, I love that, that, you know, the whole point of it is that the Joker doesn't really understand humanity and that his, his belief that people are evil is not actually correct. You know, like I, I love that theme because that, that is a theme that I like to believe. Sure. But. I don't know if it was done super, super well. And I don't know if without Heath Ledger just nailing that role, if that movie is as good as it would be. Um, also, my not whole, a lot of I can't even ahead. think of action scenes oh, off the dude. top of my head. The Hong Kong. Uh, well, scene? No, no, now I can remember that one. Yeah. There's the Hong Kong scene. There's the Batmobile chase that goes through the underground where the Joker's on the truck. There's yeah. the uh, there's where he's fighting all the uh, the cops because the Joker has switched like the hostages and the and the hostage takers in the one building. You know, there's some good shit. The one thing I want to say about the performances, like Heath Ledger's performance, unbelievable. I think though that it's easy to overlook the fact that every actor in that movie gives an unbelievable performance. Mm. You're right. I mean, that is Christian right. Bale's best as Bruce Wayne. Gary sure. Oldman fucking slays as Gordon in that movie. I mean, it's perfect. Aaron Eckhart kills it as Harvey Dent, even if he's not like pitch perfect Harvey Dent from the comics. He kills what was written in the script. Mm. I would argue even Maggie Gyllenhaal delivers as Rachel and like makes her feel like a real person in a way that fucking Katie Holmes never did. Agreed. Mm, yeah, Katie Holmes was like an ideologue, whereas I think I think the Rachel in Dark Knight Two is kind of a woman who realized that yes, she has her pick of a crusader in the night and a crusader in the day, and mm -hmm. she picks the crusader in the day because she notices that that person is more brave. Honestly, you know, if we're gonna if we're just gonna reduce her to the girl who gets on the best motorcycle, at least she's getting on the brave motorcycle. The the one she's not, you know, she's not chasing people down at night with a mask on. Uh, rather, she, her man isn't chasing people down on the mask on. And she even tells him, like, as soon as you're willing to take that mask off and be who you are in the daylight and not bifurcate your personality in this weird way, I might mm -hmm. fuck with you. But I got I to gotta be with my boy Dimple Chin over here because he's him through and through. You know what I mean? And, and I, 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 I love that about it. And I think that gets at one of the things that I know people criticize these two movies, really, The Dark Knight and The Dark Knight Rises for which is Nolan's insistence that like Bruce Wayne needs to get over being Batman. Right. And I think mm -hmm. that yeah. that's really embodied by Rachel because to use the way you put it, Ed, you know, one guy's a crusader at night, one guy's a crusader in the day. 
Maybe the Crusader in the day is braver, maybe not. But for her, as a person with needs, having a guy who can be a Crusader in the day and come home to her at night is just a better mm-hmm. life. Like, right. that's just how she wants to live. Right. And for that to actually be an option for Bruce Wayne is so not the comics. So, again, it's diverging. But as its own dramatic entity, I find that super compelling because it right. actually acknowledges what Batman is, which is a coping mechanism for trauma. And it's like, are you going to live the rest of your life in this coping mechanism or are you going to try to get over your trauma? Yeah. Again, there, there might be a morality to like, I could do a lot of good, but I'm going to choose not to. And the way that it's resolved in The Dark Knight Rises is a different conversation. But theoretically, you could see him doing the thing that everybody criticizes Batman for to begin with. Like in as the, the way The Dark Knight sees it, he could give up being Batman and start using his multi-billion dollar fortune to rebuild the city and do some fucking good and actually have a human life and move past the fact that he's a scarred little boy. And I think that that's an undercurrent. That's not the theme of the movie, but even just the fact that something that meaty is an undercurrent in the movie, I think it speaks volumes. Yeah, I don't disagree. It was a good movie. And look, um, any of my criticisms come from years later. I can tell you 100% that when I saw that in the theater, my mind was fucking blown. I can just tell you right now. I remember the first time I saw it. It was another one of those, I'm in the crowd when you know tons of people are there and this and look the there's great scenes in it there's great action scenes but the time when 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 the joker goes i can make this pencil disappear and they're like what is he doing and then he slams that dude's head down on it the the people's audible reaction to that was priceless and Mm -hmm. i remember that like it's a vivid memory in me i so i i gotta say definitely that the dark knight is has to be part of the top two top three uh for for the 2000s to 2009 well and again and what bill's talking about though is like so we, we can get down to uh, i guess i'm the only one who has actual like real criticisms of the movie and and I'm, I'm just saying real as in good i'm saying real as in ah these just stuck in my craw what you said about uh it being more of a of its own intense dramatic unit instead of being trying to approximate batman is why i don't like it because I, I, why I don't like that aspect of it? Because again, this whole relentless Batman has to quit, blah, blah. I liked it more when it was just that weird bullshit. I like the bullshit of Vicky Vale being able to be okay with this motherfucker going out every night. Almost like you love a guy who's a cop on the late shift. You know what I mean? And you know that every night from three to five, he's dealing with some of the worst of humanity at night. You know what I mean? And, you just got to pray that he comes home to you every night, you know, or every morning and you can make up a breakfast burrito or whatever the fuck. And you guys can jack around until he goes to sleep <laughs> and then he wakes up and goes and fights crime. You know, there are women right now who live life with a cop on the night shift. So to me, that wasn't like this big, oh, God, but I do get a traumatized little boy standing on rooftops. I get that as the movie kind of painting him a little bit in that way. And I just have always felt that Batman is equal parts traumatized motherfucker and daredevil like his trauma like a lot of these motherfuckers who do a thousand sit-ups before, before, you know, uh, they go to sleep. And when they wake up, these type of driven people, something traumatized them. Somebody pinched their tit and goddamn, uh, middle school. And that's why there's a thousand pushups every night. You know what I mean? And there's, there's all this stuff you do to make yourself this beautiful physical specimen, this 
super armed, but everything short of guns, you just got everything on your belt and in your cape and you're jumping off. There's something about this armor of a child to Batman. But once you get to the level of that, there's also this daredevil that's there, this person who doesn't feel alive unless he's dropping off of a sheer cliff, cliff face, unless he's faced down five guys with machine guns. There's a daredevil there. There's not just a trauma. A traumatized person could never. A traumatized person would maybe try to do this one night and get shot because that's what they wanted anyway. Mm. He doesn't want to die. He wants to live. You know what I'm saying? And this is his peculiar way of showing it. And I feel like taking that a little bit away from him and kind of making him this traumatized little boy and he's got to mature into going to bed every night with Maggie Gyllenhaal. That's some kind of mature way to be. Just save that shit. I, I don't I don't agree with that as a basic supposition for okay. this comic book character. Okay. But I feel like that might be the strength of the movie for regular people because they know that what I'm saying is bullshit that could never be sustainable. In real, <laughs> you know, I, I mean, to a certain I extent, mean, yes. But also you have to remember that I think the movie might embrace what you're talking about more than you remember it with the the glasses colored by the dark knight rises mm. because the end of the dark knight is bar none the greatest end to any superhero movie i've ever seen and it's in the way that it reconciles that plot point of should i or should i not be batman should i have the life of an adult man who's over his trauma or should i live in this place of needing batman to feel alive it reconciles that with the overt theme that the Joker brings up of are people good or are they not? And it is a masterstroke and it makes no fucking sense. And I know you hate that, Ed, that like <laughs> just because Harvey Dent turned out to be a murderer, they're not going to throw out all of his cases. I would actually say that might be more accurate than you give it credit for. Um mm. It depends on a lot of the ins and outs of whatever those cases were, which we'll never know because it's a fiction. But I will say that that idea of you have to hunt me now, it, it is a final answer to the question that Maggie Gyllenhaal posed. Can you ever take off the mask? And it's a final answer to the question the Joker posed. Because even when things go horribly wrong even when people prove themselves to be pieces of shit, despite everything you want them to be, as in the case of Harvey Dent, there will always be somebody that can step up and say, put it on my shoulders. Mm. I don't give a fuck. I'll be, I'll be whatever. You, I mean, it's in the script. I'll be whatever you need me to be. The, the yeah. level of selflessness that that speaks to mm -hmm. is unmatched in any other superhero movie and then the gary oldman soliloquy again contrasting with batman begins where every like ideological speech just sounds like something out of a freshman textbook gary oldman talking to his son and being like we have to chase him now it's a little overwrought but i will when i was in the theater watching that for the first time i had tears streaming down my face because that affected me so much it was just like and and it felt like he became the Batman you wanted him to become, Ed. Like, mm -hmm. fuck it. I'm going to go out every night and do this shit because it needs to get done and I'm the only one that can do it. 
And then the yeah. Dark Knight pulls the rug out. The Dark Knight Rises pulls the rug out from under. Dude, I was about to say, imagine my motherfucking disappointment when I get Leg Brace McGee in the next one. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just like, what the fuck? You just, you were just chasing him. It's, you know what I mean? It was, oh, God damn. But yes, so last things last about uh, my so-called criticisms. I, I, I do agree that if indeed Heath Ledger's Joker wasn't in that movie, we would get something more akin to the latest Batman movie. But I, mm-hmm. I'm using that point to say that's what makes this movie, the, not only the world building being frankly better and the staging of certain things being better. I ain't talking about necessarily action, but the staging of dramatic moments and stuff being better in the Dark Knight than the newest Batman movie. I think that there's just these, these threads, this, this building lattice work inside that movie that has to be respected. And I think, um, the, the performances and the, the themes are so much larger in something like that than they are in a lot of other Batman fare. I do think the latest Batman movie has the best, um, you know, indictment of Batman or rather the young Bruce Wayne being a rich fuck who punches mm. people at night and what he should, he should kind of be more of a symbol for the average Joe, the, the average Joe in, in, in the city. I think in the dark night, it's perfectly beautiful. The average Joe in the city doesn't hate Batman despite all these machinations, despite the Joker trying to vilify him, despite all this shit, the average Joe in the city can see through this and knows that on some level they need Batman. There are certain people who are mad at him and shit in that press conference, but overall, I think the average Joe in the city feels Batman's presence. And that's another cool thing about the third one is people still remember him as a good thing, not a bad thing, despite how his reputation was besmirched because he did the jobs in the streets. Like back in the days, they would vilify the Black Panthers who were giving people like fucking meal programs and shit. They, they, when you read the yep. papers, those people yep. were monsters, but the people in the hood knew those people were good. So you're always going to get me with any sort of grassroots, the people's champ type shit. You're always going to get me on that. So that's why for a time, for a little while, I tried to like this newest Batman movie more than the Dark Knight. I tried to say that it was more this and more that. But in the end, it's kind of got a cooler Batmobile. Uh, uh, or uh, it's kind of got a more grounded, cooler Batmobile. Other than that, I don't know how it beats this this older movie with older technology on every level. I don't know how it beats it. That The Dark Knight is an impregnable fortress. And I love the fact that it appeals to regular people. And for that reason, I got to even admit that it is the greatest for my personal opinion. <laughs> even it is the greatest. I do not like Batman being a fucking quitter. I do not like this over-reliance of the stupid-ass Joker. I do not like that Chinese sequence. I think it sucks. I think when he busts through the window and three Chinese motherfuckers got him dead to rights with Uzis, but he just sort of wanders out of frame and doesn't get shot. I I, I can't stand it. I don't like Fair. that. I think Fair. it's very weak. But in the aggregate, I think Nolan did hit on something as to this would be Batman in real life. Batman, uh, but again, but that both that and the Batman have this propensity to show yeah. Batman just walking around with motherfuckers, palling around with cops that I just can't stand. That's you fair. know, but in this in the real worlds they propose, there's no way you could get away with being this active in crimes without running into cops a whole lot. So it's like it's fake as fuck, but more real at the same time. It, you know, so that's it's my soliloquy on it. It's definitively not your perfect Batman, which is fine. And I don't think it's mine either, but I just, 
I'm going to also say for my money, greatest move, greatest superhero comic book movie of the 2000s is The Dark Knight. Ron? Hmm. Watchmen. <laughs> oh, yeah. That's going to be really maddening when people realize that we didn't talk about that and we're not going to. Oh, no, that's going to nope. nope. really fuck people up. But I, I brought it up as a joke. Um, yep. I think I think I have to go Iron Man. I I okay. don't get me wrong. I do know that technically the Dark Knight is probably a better movie overall. I think Iron Man is a better comic book movie. It's the one I like the best. Yeah. And if I was going to go rewatch it again, if I was going to go rewatch either movie again, I'd probably choose Iron Man first. See, I, I do. I, I agree with that. And I respect it. I think, though, the thing that both Iron Man and Dark Knight do, or Dark Knight did a tiny bit better, it was convinced motherfuckers that these things are actual movies. They're not like a Paris yeah. Hilton R&B album. They're not some <laughs> joke. They're not some niche thing for dorks and mouth breathers. They are viable motion pictures like any other. And I think if we're going to say which one of these two did that the most, man, they're going to be mentioned in Dark Knight with goddamn Raiders of the Lost Ark and shit. You know what I mean? Like real adventure movies across time. Yep. And I think the fact that Nolan made such a such a film, it is maybe it is the first one that's going to be taken seriously for almost the rest of time. Fair. Here's here's a question. Taking uh, the Dark Knight and Iron Man off the table, what's your favorite of the 2000s? And just because I was thinking of the question, so I have an answer, I think I got to go Spider-Man 2. I think Spider-Man 2, for me, edges out Incredibles, partly because I just, I, I still don't know if I get on board with Incredibles meeting all the criteria. It was never a comic book, which right. is what we're talking about here. Well, as we coined it the first one, though, it's like a, it's it's almost a, I think it's it's a reverse comic book movie in that, you know, like it and Unbreakable have a new category. I don't know if we can call those reverse comic book movies because they're comic booky, but not based on comics. But there's comic some other word. We need. Yes. Yes. Yeah. So it is the greatest comic book love letter that I've seen. I mean, you don't see a better comic book love letter until maybe Endgame. Yeah. You I know, mean, as far as something that's a that's a letter to comics and how dope they are. But anyway, I think. That we have our we have our list, and I think oh mine. If we're gonna talk about favorite Blade Two, <laughs> love that. I, I fucking love Blade Two. I'll watch it for pleasure any day. I fast forward through some of the weak CGI parts, but <laughs> for the most part, man, I can fuck with Blade any day. Blade Two um, and Blade. It's probably a tie with Blade Two and X Two. Okay, I nice. go back and forth, but probably Blade Two wins out overall, though. You know what? I, I'm a sucker for really good martial arts in a movie, and and Blade Two had some amazing fight scenes. So. Oh, honorable mention, Electra. Man, 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 man. Well, there you have it, people. The 2000s, the year of the transcendent sequels, and the beginning of the MCU. What a marathon that was! Thank you guys so much for uh, participating in this series. Thank you for looking at our Patreon, patreon.com forward slash the greatest pod. Thank you for leaving all sorts of super dope reviews on Apple and Spotify and even on Reddit threads and different things. As Ron said before, take a picture of you giving us a big, big ups and props, send it to email the greatest pod 
and we will read it and uh, put it on air. All these things are ways for you to participate in these giant conversations that we have. Yep, and that's a great way to say thank you, as always, for listening to another amazing theatrical episode of The Greatest Pod.